Welcome to another service. I the surprise for those of you who wondered about that in the group me message is that I have shaved my quarantine beard. My wife let me know that it was becoming a symbol of concern, perhaps like a protest, like the uh, Old Testament prophets who would uh, rend their garments and uh, put, put sackcloth and ashes on. Uh, my beard had gotten unruly. My kids are not a big fan of the change that I've made to my facial hair. Uh, my daughter wrote me a letter that says, My face looks worse than a forest with no trees. Mom has very bad taste when it comes to facial hair. Surely I will let my precious children pick out my outfits. But you, having no beard, well, it makes you look atrocious. I'm glad that my wife's opinion is <laughs> your beard ties you together. <laughs> now we will look away from that beardless face. Uh, thankfully, my wife is the one whose opinion matters the most about my face. And uh, it is beardless now. I had a quarantine beard, and now I do not. We are starting a new uh, book of the Bible. And uh, as a church, uh, we love the book by Mark Dever, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. One of the things that we... I love our um, expository uh, teachings through a book of the Bible, and we've done that many times. We had a very, um, well, a, a deviation from what we normally do. Uh, I'm hopeful that in two Sundays, we will be done with this deviation of what we normally do, uh, and I will no longer be preaching by video to anybody. I hope I'll be in person in Lonsdale at our church, and we will be back. Um, continue to pray for wisdom for our leaders as we examine all of that. But we will be doing a series uh, in a short book. It'll be a short series. Uh, and it, the book is First Peter. First Peter. It's a very encouraging text for us. It's a very encouraging text for this time period, coronavirus and pandemic and fear and hysteria and dismissal and conspiracy. Uh, there have been reactions that run all over the gamut, and uh, it is a very challenging time uh, in which we live. If you open your Bibles to First Peter, First Peter, it's real close to the end, if you didn't memorize all your books of the Bible. First Peter, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, 
though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May God add his blessing to this reading from his holy and inspired word. Well, who is the author of this book? If that seems straightforward to you, I agree. The author is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, who names himself as the author in the first word of the book. I read a book called The Death of Expertise. Currently, there's lots of debate about experts, trusting experts, how much to trust experts. I have a suspicion many times that experts don't know what they're talking about. I try not to ascribe malice to ignorance. Uh, but when we were told that masks don't help, but please send all your masks to the hospitals, um, I thought the only options for people saying this are that they are stupid or that they are lying. I think for most of them, it was the latter. They weren't morons. They just were enough morons in terms of how people would understand what they said that they thought that they could tell us something like that and people with common sense wouldn't immediately discredit everything else they said. Unfortunately, many of those people are still considered the top experts in the field. Why am I even digressing there? Experts, experts, the experts, will tell you that this book was not written by Peter. And let me explain something about the Greek language. Those people are either liars or fools. Those are the options. They may have gone to great, very prestigious universities. They may have lots of letters next to their name. Uh, biblically, they would be called fools. Okay, There's not questions about this authorship that are credible. But Clayton, what about Second Peter? That seems different. Second Peter is also written by Peter. Peter wrote this, and he wrote it to a group of people who we're going to think a little bit about and talk a little bit about as it relates to us today and also as it relates to the providence of God, the beautiful foreknowledge that he has, the way in which he works, and the way in which he works sometimes through our suffering. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter himself suffered. Peter himself was given one of the most beautiful redemption stories in the Gospels. Peter, who denied Christ three times, is then restored to Christ three times. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. 
Peter who becomes the rock upon which Christ builds the church despite his failings. Peter was an eager man, a bold man, a confident man. He was a man of great faith. He was a man who put his hope in Christ. He was a man who failed Christ in the biggest hour of testing. And he was a man who Christ redeemed in a beautiful way. Peter is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The language thing matters just in this sense, guys. One of the criticisms of this text is that it's too good. It's written too well. Maybe if you said that this was Luke, you know, maybe, maybe if you said, I mean, he's a doctor, doctors are smart. Maybe if you said that it was the Apostle Paul. Paul, after all, studied under Gamaliel. He's, he's a brilliant, he's a lawyer, essentially. He went to the Harvard of the Middle East at the time. Peter's a fisherman. What does Peter know? I mean, did you read the Gospels? Peter's not a smart guy. And Peter was devoted to the calling that God gave him, and he worked, he worked really hard as an apostle. What does apostle mean? Are there still apostles today? Well, the answer is yes and no. Apostle, apostolos, means messenger. And he was a messenger, one sent by God with a message. He was a messenger. He was also in the office of apostle. There was something very unique, and it had to do with those who lived and saw Christ and then who were set up to be the initial leadership of the church. The church initially wasn't split, had unity, and was a group of people who included some preeminent leaders. And Peter was one of those leaders, an apostle. He wasn't a stupid man. He was a man who continued learning. He was a man who had the ability to reach people who culturally, culturally were like him, Jewish, but also in this time period, Hellenistic Jews, Jews who spoke Greek, had spread out all over the place. And they spread out all over the place because of persecution. Simon has become Peter. I'm going to tell you about another man, a man named Antiochus. Antiochus, a Greek man. His initial name is Mithridates. Antiochus was a king of the Seleucid Empire from 175 B.C. until 164 B.C. That's prior to Christ. What does this have to do with First Peter? It has to do with the, a lot with the audience that Peter is writing to. Antiochus was a vile, evil man. There's a lot written about him. He's the first king in the Seleucid Empire to call himself God. He took the title on and put it on the coinage that he was God. He was a persecutor of Jews. He didn't want Jews to practice as they had been allowed to under the previous kings in the empire, uh, their religion. And so there was a great dispersal of Jews. His persecution of them was intense. He was mocked. He was called 
Epimanes instead of um, his preferred title, which his mockery was that he was called the Mad One. But this evil king spread Jews out, moved them out, spread them out. And where did these Jews, who now understood the Scripture, the Old Testament, who also were very conversant in Greek, and found a way to survive despite being oppressed and persecuted, where did they disperse? Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Does that all make sense? They, these were people who were persecuted and spread out all over the place. Well, now Peter says the Messiah has come. You guys know the Messiah. You know who the prophets have been talking about? You know who the prophets wrote about? You know who you longed for, who you've been waiting for? He came. He lived. He died and he lived again. I knew him. I was with him. And I know him today because he's alive. He lives and reigns in us. This evil king, this wicked king, 150 years plus before Jesus is born, did something that ended up having a positive impact on the kingdom of God, on the way that people were sent out. To those who are elect exiles, aliens and strangers, this world is not our home. But what is an elect exile? Well, Jews who were immersed in Hellenistic culture, that is Greek culture, and then scattered to Asia, were multiple times removed from the culture they were in. This is not a blanket statement, and I have some dear friends who are pretty normal people who are missionaries. But we're all shaped, normed by the culture around us, normed by the people around us, and sometimes, if you've known lots of missionaries, you know some people who are just really strange. And you wonder, were they always really strange? Or are they strange because they're separated somehow from social norming? I have a theory that we're all a little weird and we get weirder when no one's around us to kind of bring us back. Elect exiles. Well, what is election? We're chosen by God. Because we're so great? No, because he, in his wisdom, chooses those whom he will save. But elect chosen is a special designation. It's a beautiful designation. But exiles, well, where was their home? Their, their home culturally was Israel. Their home where their traditions could be practiced, where their faith could be practiced, and in a time when religiously they believed that in order to be close to God, you had to be by the temple, it was incredibly painful for them to be thrown out, to be cast out, to be far removed from the culture they longed to be in. But it provided a fertile ground for the good news of the gospel to take hold in all of these various cities where Peter was able to minister. Elect exiles. Well, guys, who are we? 
Uh, there's a great song that my wife corrects me when I sing along because she says I'm not allowed to sing it all the way. Um, it's by Drew Holcomb um, and the Neighbors. It's it's uh, Tennessee, and uh, the line that I'm not allowed to sing uh, says, I was born here and raised here, and I'll make my grave here. Well, I'm not sure where I'll make my grave. Um, I was raised here. I was not born here. My wife was born here, and she'll tell you that she's also going to die here, so... Um, Tennessee is not really our home though because some other state has our heart no because as believers this is not our home heaven is our home we're aliens and strangers this is a tent our earthly dwelling this isn't our home we're exiles well, culturally, I mean, you know, you fit in pretty well in Tennessee. Don't you feel good? Because I love Tennessee. Not only do I love Tennessee, I specifically love East Tennessee. Tri-Star flag, three grand divisions. I think East Tennessee is the best part of the state. I love the mountains. I love the culture. I love the independence. Incredible, wonderful, beautiful, amazing place. Was against slavery as an area in the run-up to the Civil War. I mean, lots of really cool things about East Tennessee. It's not my home. I'm an exile. I'm a stranger here. I will be until I go to heaven. And culturally, our kids are growing up knowing that they're weird and that if they follow Christ, they're going to stay weird. They are weird kids because our goal is not for our kids to be normal. It's not at all for our kids to be normal. If you are in a group of people who are running headlong toward hell, you don't want to be seeing any backs. You need to only be seeing the faces of those who you're going the opposite direction of, saying, please stop, turn around. Turn around. Don't go this way. This is wrong. This is the wrong path. This is not the way you want to go. This is not where you want to be. We are elect exiles as their church was elect exiles. The prosperity gospel would look at elect exiles and say, they're not beloved of God. These people, again, we're understanding this as the Jewish diaspora, these people were chosen and then chosen again. They're the chosen people. They're God's holy people. They're the Jews. And now they're chosen for redemption to become Messianic Jews, to understand who the Messiah is, to accept Jesus, the Christ, as their Lord and Savior. If you took the prosperity gospel approach, you'd say, they are obviously not, not doing well. They're obviously not beloved by God. If they were, they wouldn't be poor. They wouldn't be scattered. They wouldn't be persecuted. They wouldn't be suffering. The apostle Peter is going to speak about that significantly through this book. Guys, suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Suffering doesn't mean you're less than. Suffering doesn't mean 
what people who lie about God's chosen people say it means. Suffering could, in fact, be evidence of God's love for you. Oh, that's not going to be a popular one. No, it's, I think it's very unpopular. But again, we're on a narrow road. We're going the opposite of our culture. And we should understand that sometimes we're called to suffer. Matthew Henry, from a little over 300 years ago, said this very well. At present, their circumstances were poor and afflicted. The best of God's servants may, through the hardships of times and providences, be dispersed about and forced to leave their native countries. Those of whom the world was not worthy have been forced to wander in mountains and dens and caves of the earth. We ought to have special regard to the dispersed, persecuted servants of God. These were the objects of this apostle's particular care and compassion. The value of good people ought not to be estimated by their present external condition. Here was a set of excellent people beloved of God, and yet strangers, dispersed, and poor in the world. The eye of God was upon them in all their dispersions, and the apostle was tenderly careful to write to them for their direction and consolation. Now, where does he speak to them specifically? Is he going to focus on their material circumstances? No, he'll mention them. He'll mention suffering. But that's not his focus. As I don't know how much you've been a navel-gazing, woe is me, person right now in this time. But it's not to be our focus either. Where should our focus be? Well, how does he see them? How does he address them? Elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace. Because your circumstances are good. No, their circumstances were not good. They weren't good. We'll talk more about this. First Peter, the persecution's coming. And second Peter, the persecution started, and Peter himself is about to be killed by the Roman state. Executed. And yet, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you, so let's keep thinking about ourselves. No, grace and peace are multiplied to you when you focus on Him. You focus on giving Him praise and glory and adoration and everything He deserves. And when you think about yourself, you're thinking about yourself in relation to your gratitude for what He's done for you. That He saved you, that He's changed you, that he's rescued and redeemed you. Not, Lord, you know my knee's hurting. Can we fix that, please? No. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Guys, the stock market is back. 5,000 points from its low. Round numbers, this is wrong, but 30 to 20 to 25. Yeah, we're coming back. 
if the stock market is your inheritance, then I hope they come to know Jesus. If that's where your trust is, if that's your hope, if that's where everything's pinned, I want you to get saved. Oh, Clayton, I have a 401k, and I'm just trying to make sure that I can live up. Okay, I mean, it's not wrong to have a 401k. It's not wrong to follow the stock market. It is wrong to put your hope and your trust and your faith and your security in the stock market. That's wrong. Where should all of that be? It should reside in Jesus Christ. And the inheritance that we have in him is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Can't be taken away. Can't be diminished. Isn't concerned about COVID. Isn't concerned about the economy and jobs and it doesn't mean that none of that matters what it means is that spiritually none of that changes our spiritual reality when you feel sad afraid frustrated it's also not saying you can't have human emotions it's saying set your mind on things above set your mind on things above meditate on this passage and rejoice that better than any treasure we could have on earth that moth eats and rust destroys. There's an imperishable, eternal, unfading inheritance that's kept for you by the Father. That's kept for you. It can't be taken away. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, now he's speaking to me. Various trials. We're stuck in those trials. So what's the, I mean, what, what do we do with the trials? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Consider my servant Job. Consider my servant Job. Satan says, no, he won't rejoice in you. Not if I get through with him. I'm going to destroy his life. I'm going to give him open sores on his body. I'm going to kill his family. I'm going to take away all his treasure, all his wealth. His, his incredible herds are going to be gone. Then he's going to hate you, God. That's what's going to happen. No, not what's going to happen. Job loves me, and his love for me isn't based on his circumstances. Guys, I, I don't want to see it because of the pain that it means will have been caused to someone. But what a witness for someone if everyone in their family died of COVID and they didn't. And they rejoiced and shared the gospel and said, my family is in heaven with Jesus. And I'm so thankful for that. And I have a lot to rejoice in. Oh, I mean, Clayton, shouldn't they have some time to grieve? Sure, of course. Absolutely. In tragedy, what is revealed often is whether people actually believe what they say they believe or not. One of the most compelling things I've seen in the last 10 years from any church about anything was after the Charleston shooting. That wicked, evil, horrible white supremacist who went in and murdered people who were worshiping God after sitting with them and listening to a Bible study. And the family members got up and extended forgiveness. Well, I'm mad about that. They don't. He doesn't deserve that. No, he doesn't. 
He deserves hell. And so do all of us. And what they demonstrated was from above. It came from God. It was spiritual. It couldn't be explained by our flesh. In the same way, in this you rejoice, verse 6, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, now more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Guys, if I was slick, if I was good at videos and, I don't know, multimedia presentations, I would right now say roll it and our AV equipment would turn on and you would watch. But you can just Google it on YouTube right after this, okay? The process is really interesting in which gold is purified by heat and the impurities rise to the surface. Because of the heat, a gold thing that looks pretty much like it's pure gold becomes actually pure gold through this intense process. And this is not the only place that we are described this way. Because when the heat is turned up, what's bubbling out of you? Don't waste it. Don't waste it. And also, don't reclaim it. Okay? I, I, if you're going to get into a cartoon image now, if the dross is all bubbling up to the top, don't have little golden hands that's going, wait, I, I still like that one. I still want to, uh, let me hold on to that sin. I just want to still be like that. I don't I want to do that one. Don't waste this time. We are in many ways under intense pressure. There's heat. It's hot. It's uncomfortable. Gross things that we didn't even know were there are bubbling up and coming to the surface. Wipe them away. Get rid of them. Get them out of your life. may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How much time are you giving right now to rejoicing? How much time are you giving to rejoicing in the invisible God and the work in which he's doing in your life? If you say you love God and you hate your brother, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Okay, Scripture teaches us that clearly. How can we say we love the one we have not seen when we hate this one here who we see? We are in this strange age, this strange time of Zoom calls and things like that. Guys, love the people who are in front of you, okay? Do not understand that the dross in part that might be bubbling to the surface is that you're doing a bad job of loving your family. Work on it. Clayton, I'm doing a great job meditating on the things of the Lord. So far, I think my kids have missed seven or eight meals, but my quiet time, it's doing awesome. The practical realities around you are challenging. Difficult, strange, different. Rejoice in the Lord. Praise God. Love Him, but be filled up by Him 
so that you might love others, love the people around you. This is not a time to say, you know, there's, there's Christianity and then there's COVID Christianity. This is not the real me. This is just quarantine me. And quarantine me needs to get drunk every day by at least 6 or 7 p.m. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. This is a time to demonstrate your love for God by loving those around you well. The last part, 10 through 12, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This age we're in is a miraculous age. It's an age in which you can download for free in incredible numbers of languages the word of God that is without error. You have been blessed to be in a time when we're not waiting for the Messiah to come. He has come. The prophets who waited and prayed and longed for the day died before they saw it. But we, we can know the living God who has come, who has saved and transformed us, who has brought us from death to life, who has given us an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And in that, we can, we should, we must rejoice. Let's pray. God, we look at a time in church history when state persecution was about to be rampant, when people who were your people were mostly living in poverty, when challenges were everywhere, and we see that they're being urged to rejoice, that they're being urged to see this as a positive thing, as a refining, as something that will bring you glory. I pray that we, as a church, will grasp this time, this challenge, as a time to bring you glory, as a time to hold on to the truth of who you are and what you've done for us, to understand our own identity as elect exiles, as those chosen by you, beloved by you, but not home yet. As we see things that we held on to slipping away, as we see idols being destroyed, we pray that we will rejoice and we'll be careful to give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.